Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spirited and spiritual community dedicated to the free and responsible search for truth and meaning together and to the search for how to be in right relationship to ourselves, to one another, to our community, and to our planet. We have come from a long tradition of teaching that there's a spark of the divine inside everyone. And so one of the ways that we greet the divine on a Sunday morning is by greeting the people who are around us. And if you have comments on the platform that you're watching us on, you can greet people in the comments. I invite you now to say the chalice lighting words with me if you were moved to do so. This is the flame we hold in our hearts as we strive for justice for everyone. This is the light we shine upon systems of oppression until they are no more. This is the warmth that we share with one another as our struggle becomes our salvation. Molly Ivins is a famous Texas writer and political analyst who had her very first speaking engagement at the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin's Public Affairs Forum. She writes, I prefer someone who burns the flag and then wraps themselves up in the Constitution over someone who burns the Constitution and then wraps themselves up in the flag. This congregation has a mission that guides us as we make our decisions about where to go in the future and what we're doing right now. We wrote it on the wall in our sanctuary and we say it together every Sunday. Together we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. After we say our mission, we have a moment where we talk about beloved community, where we're thinking about how to transform other people's lives or more transform our own by lifting the veil from so many things that our white supremacy culture hides from those of us who identify as white and can even hide from people of color, although most people of color seem to be extraordinarily aware of the elements of white supremacy culture and can name them off. Just don't ask a person of color to do it. Do your own research if you're a white person. One of the things I thought I'd talk to you about today is looking for images on Google. And we found that it's difficult to find images other than images of white people. When you type in images of kid blowing bubbles, it's almost always white kids. When you type in image of women talking, it's almost always white women. Image of a woman and a man arguing, it's always white people. And that many of the images that are images of people of color are images of folks who are in an aggressive or angry stance. This is our culture talking loudly to us all. It's not okay. I want you to notice that. And I want you to know that there are a couple of sites that are specifically so that you can go and search images that are happy, functioning, lively, living images of people of color. One is 
sweetly called nappy.com. And so just go take a look and see what a difference it would be if your search field were full of faces that look like American faces rather than all white faces. Good morning. Today I'm going to read to you an abridged version of a book I wrote about how a person who's born with a natural gift, in this case the natural gift of a powerful speaking voice, can grow and develop that gift into a tool that they can use to make life better for other people. In this case, the person who had that gift was a great, famous, inspirational woman from Texas named Barbara Jordan. I wrote this book. Aqua Holmes illustrated it. It's called, What Do You Do With a Voice Like That? Growing up in the fifth ward of Houston, Texas, Barbara Jordan stood out. She may have looked like other kids. She may have acted like other kids. But she sure didn't sound like other kids. Not with that voice of hers. That voice... That big, bold, booming, crisp, clear, confident voice. It caused folks to sit right up, stand up straight, and take notice. What do you do with a voice like that? Well, first you give that voice something to say. Barbara recited poetry at church. She memorized speeches for school. She entered oratory contests and in 1952 won a trip to Chicago. The first time she'd ever left Texas. Barbara was proud of herself and proud of her voice. It was laying a path for her. But where would that path lead? On Sunday evenings, Barbara would talk things over with Grandpa Patton. Would she become a preacher like her father and like her mother could have been? Or a teacher like those who encouraged her at Phyllis Wheatley High? Or perhaps she'd become a lawyer. Not many black women had achieved that. But one who had done so visited Wheatley and gave a stirring speech. Barbara was inspired. Well, Barbara went to college. She went to law school. She became a lawyer. Being a lawyer kind of bored her, but she also got interested in politics. And one night in 1960, a scheduled speaker was absent at a political event. And Barbara was asked if she would fill in. She said yes. The audience loved her. They trusted her. Most important, they were inspired to do something, to get out and vote and to help round up others and get them to vote. Her voice had made a difference. She went on to run for office herself. She ran three times. Finally, the third time she won a seat in the Texas State Senate. Now, changes to our laws sometimes come from raising a ruckus outside the system. But Barbara's way was to make change from within. Sometimes that change, such as higher pay for farm laborers and more aid for people who got hurt at work, sometimes that change took place in public through debates on the Senate floor. Sometimes it didn't. Barbara got to know the other senators as individuals, and despite their differences, they came to relate to her in the same way. When each listened to what the other had to say, they could hear what was important to them, and it helped them all do a better job. What do you do with a voice like that? You share it with the entire country. In her next election in 1972, Barbara moved up to the United States Congress in Washington, D.C. But soon came a troubled, confusing time for the nation. President Nixon, it seemed, had broken the law, and Congress had to decide what to do about it. 
On a TV broadcast seen throughout the country, Barbara used her voice to show them the way. My faith in the Constitution is whole, it is complete, it is total. And I am not going to sit here and be an idle spectator to the diminution, the subversion, the destruction of the Constitution. The Constitution, Barbara said, must be preserved. The President, Barbara said, must go. The President went. That speech made Barbara a star. She shone like a bright light in a dark place. Barbara would have loved spending more nights under actual stars, camping and singing with her friends, but the public wanted more of her and more from her. She delivered, battling to protect the rights of Mexican-American voters and others against discrimination. There were whispers and rumblings of what might be next for Barbara. The U.S. Senate? The Supreme Court? Could she possibly become Vice President Jordan? Who knew how high she might rise? However, Barbara was sick. Barbara had a condition called multiple sclerosis, and it made it difficult for her to do her job to her satisfaction in Congress. So she came back to Texas. She listened to an inner voice that told her it was time to come home. Here, right here in Austin, she became a teacher. College students who intended to put their own voices to public use lined up for the chance to learn from her. In her classroom, you can bet that they sat right up, stood up straight, and took notice of the values she imparted. Equality, justice, trust. Barbara used her voice to instruct and implore and inspire them not just to get out and do something, but to do the right thing. Barbara Jordan's former students still move among us, striving to do work that would have made her proud, hearing echoes of her words as they try to make life better for all of us. For when it has been silenced, what do we do with a voice like that? We remember it and we honor it by making our own voices heard. Our meditative reading today comes to us from James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time. Baldwin was an American novelist, playwright, essayist, poet, and activist. His essays explore intricacies of racial, sexual, and class distinctions in Western society, most notably in regard to the mid-20th century United States. In his essay, he wrote, The spreading of the gospel, regardless of the motives or the integrity or the heroism of some of the missionaries, was an absolutely indispensable justification for the planting of the flag. Priests and nuns and school teachers helped to protect and sanctify the power that was so ruthlessly being used by people who were indeed seeking a city, but not one in the heavens, and one to be made very definitely by captive hands. The Christian Church itself, again, as distinguished from some of its ministers, sanctified and rejoiced in the conquest of the flag and encouraged, if it did not formulate, the belief that conquest, with the resulting relative well-being of the Western populations, was proof of the favor of God.
Now is the time in our service when we enter together into an attitude of prayer and meditation, where we speak and listen to God as we understand God, or where we just listen to our inner wisdom, or where we just watch our breath come in and out of our bodies. In any of these ways, we can find that still point inside where we can feel the compassion of the heart of compassion and where we can feel the love of the river of love that runs through the universe. Where we can feel the truth that the spirit of truth is shining on us all the time. Let us enter into prayer and meditation together. Beloved, divinity and mystery of all names. This is a tough time. People are nervous and anxious and people are scared and people are feeling defiant and worried and fighting is easy. Peace is hard. We ask for help and guidance in this difficult time. How to be there for the people in our families, the people at our workplaces, the people that we see as we move about our business. And for those of us who are sheltering alone, we ask for a sense of connectedness and comfort. Let us enter the wise silence together. As we continue an attitude of meditation, you're invited to light candles in your home. Candles of joy or sorrow or hope, remembrance or determination. One of the things that I see my folks breaking their brains over is trying to understand how in the world evangelical Christians as a group seem to be sticking so close to this current president in the White House. They do things like put up memes about uh, things that Rabbi Jesus said and then things that the so-called Christian rights says, and they, they stand stunned at the disconnect. And they, they list our current president's moral and ethical failings, and they, they say, how can the evangelicals stick with him with such a person that is counter to everything they believe in? Well, I thought this close to the election and the things that we're going to see in the next few weeks, it would be good to educate ourselves about the uh, sociological and religious context that is affecting this in great swaths of our country. So I'm going to go all the way back to the 5th century. 
like James Michener or Rachel Maddow. We're going to go all the way back to Augustine, who was a Christian theologian born in what is now Algeria in North Africa. And he was one of the most significant voices in Christian theology in the early church, especially for Orthodox Christianity, which just means the regular Christianity that was decided on by the bishops that gathered in the Council of Nicaea to get clear on what Christians should believe. And that was in the year 325. So Augustine in the early 400s was writing about Christianity and what people should believe. And he was trying to figure a bunch of things out. And the starting place for regular Orthodox Christianity was that God is all-powerful. Okay, so if you start with that, you have an all-powerful God, so that means that whatever God wants to happen is going to happen, right? Because God is all-powerful. And the other thing that Christians believed, supposed to believe, is that we're not saved by our good works or our actions, we're saved by the grace of God. So in other words, God reaches down and touches a person who then becomes filled with the ability to believe and the ability to behave as a Christian person by the grace of God, not by the, anything that uh, that person particularly does. So if you have these two things, an all-powerful God and this being saved by grace, Augustine was turning this over in his brain and logically what you come out with and parenthetically logic is as good a way to go wrong in your thinking as anything else um what made sense to augustine was um if god wants everybody to be saved to be a believer then everyone would be saved boom but they're not So what does that mean? It must mean that God doesn't extend grace to everyone. What does that mean? Well, Christians read the scriptures at this time and even now to say that the people who were chosen, they call them the elect or the chosen, were chosen before the beginnings of time. So long before you were born, and some Christians find this to be a comfort, others a horror, long before you were born, you were chosen or, corollary, unchosen. So Augustine said, basically, everybody God wants to save is going to be saved. And if you're not saved, it's because God didn't want you. Well, the next corollary of that is, So did Rabbi Jesus die for everybody's sins? Nope. Just the sins of those who were chosen. Now, they never really, really say this out loud, but if you look at any pages on Calvinist theology, uh, just look up tulip theology. There are uh, T-U-L-I-N-P. I will leave it to you to do some research on what all those stand for. One of the, the I is the irresistible grace of God. So that's what we've been talking about. God's grace can't be resisted. So Jesus didn't die for everybody. just died for the people who are elect. Church councils after Augustine 
looked at this doctrine and chewed it over and said, this is anathema, which is Greek for yuck. The early Christians did not want to believe this, but it was picked back up again during the Reformation by the Protestants, called that way because they were protesting against the Roman Catholic Church, that they were reforming, hence it was called the Reformation. And John Calvin, in the main, was one who took Augustine's thinking and took it further and said, okay, let's believe this, that, that we are the elect, and that we are elect by God from before we're born. I'm getting a trump in a minute. We're elect by God before we're born. And uh, God's grace is irresistible. And the atonement that Jesus performed is not for everybody. This left the Protestant people for the next few centuries in a swivet of anxiety about who was chosen and who wasn't chosen and how did you know you were chosen and if it wasn't by any good works that you did that you got chosen then what are you supposed to do and how do you be sure that you and more importantly your children are among the elect and surely I'm moving this conversation over to New England where the pilgrims and puritans came as dissenting Protestants, they came over and they were all in this anxiety and discussion. They found it very easy to uh, dissent with one another, too. And so they had these giant dissenting conversations about how did you t- how can you tell if you're chosen? And some said, well, you have to have a, an experience of seeing the light, like struck by lightning and having a conversion experience. And others said, oh, that's nonsense. I didn't have one of those. And I feel pretty sure I'm one of the elect. And my children didn't have one of those. But surely because I am the elect, uh, my children are also the elect. So they had, you know, are you, are you fully uh, chosen or are you half chosen, meaning your parents were chosen, or are you a quarter chosen, meaning your grandparents were chosen? It's very, very uh, confusing and to a logical person, confused. How do you tell if you are among the elect? Well, they kept looking for signs of God's favor. If you are among the elect, then surely you will be blessed. It's human nature to think that. This is as ancient as human life. If I'm doing everything right, things should go well for me, even though the very first book of the Bible, in the Bible, written in the Bible, not in the order of the Bible books, Job is about this and how this is not true. But humans still think this. If I'm doing everything right, things should go well for me. And if I get sick... Or if I lose all my money, or if my business doesn't work, or if my child dies, or if I have a hard time, it's because God's mad at me somehow. I did something and I'm being punished. And so finally, through the generations in America, uh, it, the Christianity stayed, or I call it churchianity because it's not really Christianity. The churchianity stayed, and this sense of how do you tell if you're chosen lost all nuance and became that if you were healthy and wealthy, it meant you were blessed. And if you were sickly and not wealthy, it meant you were not blessed. This is why... In America, the American culture, the American Christian culture, loves 
rich people because and handsome beautiful people because if you're beautiful you're blessed if you're rich you're blessed if you're real healthy you're blessed and this is one of the ways that in our atavistic human nature and in our american churchianity combined we think okay this person is wealthy and healthy therefore blessed therefore god has touched this person therefore god has kind of favorited this person and i want to be right next to this person so i can be favorited by god too Enter our current president. To a certain portion of the electorate, he looks smart, he looks handsome, he looks healthy, and he looks wise and, um, and manly. And did I say rich? Rich. And he wrapped himself in the flag and kissed it even sometimes. And so all the symbols of the American civil religion... The flag, the Declaration of Independence, the militias, our gun rights, our individuality, and this authoritarianism that I'm going to be bold enough to say is at the heart of evangelical culture, where the father is the head of the family and makes the decisions and drives the car, and that if you have this hyper-masculine image, like Superman, then you can be the king for the evangelical people, especially if you agree with them that the issues they have chosen to center are also centered with you. Uh, I will say in another sermon in January the history of how the issue of reproductive rights became a central cultural issue for the religious right. It was done on purpose and it was done deliberately, but we'll hear more about that later. But this president hooked up with them and their belief in authoritarianism and their belief that abortion is wrong and their belief that there should be a big daddy who's hyper-masculine and tough and this is the person who should make all the decisions and he even said godlike things like I alone can fix it and therefore he just hooked right into the heart of the evangelical culture and they just fell for him hook, line, and sinker. And so it doesn't matter if he's an adulterer or a tax cheat or whatever. doesn't matter because their preachers will say, oh, King David was also an adulterer, but God used him and blessed him and anointed him. They use all those words. So they were used to this format of the, the male authority, the, the one who makes all the decisions. And now, uh, a wrench could have been thrown into the whole thing when he got COVID. I mean, he knew how dangerous that was. Because if you get sick, you're unblessed. Really. So the only thing that could happen is he had to get better really fast. And fortunately for him, he did with the best health care in the world and the best experimental medication in the world. He made it through. Um, and he even was going to, you know, open his jacket and show a Superman uh, T-shirt as he came out of the hospital. But somebody talked him out of that. But they would have, even if he'd stayed sick with COVID, they would have found a way to make it okay. Like he was under demonic attack or the Chinese had attacked him with something. And anyway, some religious thinkers would say that he is 
the equivalent of the golden calf. Let me tell you that story. So when the Hebrew people had escaped from slavery in Egypt and they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, Moses at one point went up on Mount Sinai to receive from God the tablets of the Ten Commandments. That didn't really happen historically, but that's the faith story. And he was gone 40 days and 40 nights. And that was too long for the people. And they thought they'd been abandoned by their leader. And they said to Aaron, who was Moses' brother, give us new gods. We need a new God to lead us through this wilderness. And Aaron succumbed to the pressure and he gathered bracelets and gold earrings from everybody and melted them down in a fire. And the way he told his brother the story, Moses, when he got back down off the mountain, he was mad. Um, He said, I'd put it in the fire and out came a golden calf. Well, the worship of a bull, a god in the shape of a bull, was very common in the cultures around the Hebrew people. And so having a calf made out of gold was just fine with them. And they transferred all their desire for a leader and all their allegiance and all their joy and all their ecstasy onto this golden calf while Moses was gone. And um, they didn't really want commandments anyway. They just wanted to, you know, have a religion. They wanted to be on a team. Human beings love to be on a team. We love to have the the, the shouting and we love to have the dancing and the cheering and the fight song. And we love to, to be able to say, we rule and y'all drool. And this is exactly what Trump has given his followers by just playing to his base. He's made them a team. He's bonded them into the golden calf team. And they have a, you know, Chants that they love to say together. Like, you know, you have a favorite football team. And you have a favorite college fight song. You, have, you love Manchester United. And so you know all the songs. You know all the chants. Well, they know all the songs and they know all the chants. And um, they're the team. And he has given them someone to adulate. And he can take it. And he just absorbs it. And he needs it. So I think some religious thinkers would say he's the golden calf. It's very difficult to figure out anything that would break that bond. So American civil religion says these things. It says our founding documents were pretty much given to us by God. Even though the people who wrote those documents knew that a lot of it came from the Iroquois nation. And... They had to hassle and fight out over a lot of it, and they none of them would have said that they were dictated these things by God. But anyway, American civil religion treats those documents as sacred. We believe that uh, we are a city on a hill, a beacon of hope and freedom. We don't care what's really happening. We believe that with our hearts. We are a beacon of hope and freedom. And we believe that we are prosperous because God blesses America. And when we say God bless America, we mean keep us rich and powerful. We have great institutions. We believe that hard work can make anyone prosper in our country and that we're the land of the free and the home of the brave. And if you can work hard, you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps, whatever that means. I've never seen anybody do that. Um, 
it's kind of against physics. So, but this is part of the American civil religion. And any truth, any narrative that runs counter to this group of tenets is seen as anti-American. And if you say anything uh, that runs counter to those things, you will get accused of hating America. And now with this particular man, his followers have equated him with America. And so if you say anything against him, you hate America. This is a very dangerous yet understandable situation. Our religion calls us to be clear-eyed about our country's reality, both strengths and sins. Our religion calls us to read the history and to debunk all of the whitewashing of our history that has happened. Our religion calls us to teach anti-racism, even though this particular administration has stopped all teaching of anti-racism because it makes people hate America. And this is so clear. When you equate racism with America, uh, it's plain to see that there is something that needs to be fixed because we don't want racism to equate to America. We'd like to change that. And our religion teaches us that we can love our country and want it to be better. And our religion teaches us that we can criticize our elected leaders and that that is patriotic. And our religion teaches us that we shine the light of truth on ourselves and on our laws. And our religion teaches us that we can fight Injustice. Our religion is is love and truth and compassion. Everything else can change. And we do this together. Because no one of us can do it alone. Now please join me, if you wish, in saying our words for extinguishing our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. The lone wild bird in lofty flight is still with thee, nor leaves thy sight. And I am thine, I rest in thee. Great Spirit, come and rest in me. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.